Good. Welcome, everybody. Um, just hang on a mo for everyone to be let in. Or you think everyone's here now? Yep. Great. Excellent. Um, good. Well, welcome. Um, welcome back after the Christmas break. And uh, <clears throat> sorry, we're still online, um, but that may change soon, hopefully. But probably not until after Easter for us. But anyway, welcome to the fourth meeting of the 142nd session of the Aristotelian Society. And it's my great pleasure this evening to introduce Dr. Rachel Wiseman. Uh, Dr. Wiseman is a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Liverpool and was previously an Addison Wheeler Research Fellow at the University of Durham. She works at the intersection of philosophy of mind, action and ethics, and has worked extensively on the so-called quartet. I think a, a term that uh, Rachel uh, coined of Oxford women philosophers, uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley and Iris Murdoch. As well as several articles, she has published a Routledge guidebook on Anscombe's intention in 2016. And with Claire McCool, she has a book due on the 3rd of February, so very soon, with Chateau on the quartet entitled Metaphysical Animals, How Four Women Brought Philosophy Back to Life. I was lucky enough to read the book in draft form and can say that it is an excellent study of this group, as well as a very good read. Dr. Wiseman's paper today focuses on Anscombe, but also on Wittgenstein in considering their attitude to metaphysics and is titled, and has changed from the online program, uh, Wittgenstein, Anscombe, and the Need for Metaph Metaphysical Thinking. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Wiseman. Okay, over to me. Indeed. Yeah. Okay, thanks, um, thanks everybody for coming and, and thanks for the invitation to be here. It's, uh, well, to be in my own house, obviously it was, better when it was an invitation to be there but here I am and thank you for giving up your evenings to come and hear me talk about metaphysics. Um, okay so I think there's a sort of handout in the chat which really just tells you the different sections of the talk and gives you the the references um, so you can kind of use that to see how far through we've got. I'm not going to do a clever screen or anything I'm just going to uh, read the paper, which is uh, slightly different to the one that was uh, published as a draft, but is more or less the same. Okay, so Wittgenstein, Anscombe and the need for metaphysical thinking. So metaphysicians are in the business of making and defending modal claims, claims about how things must or could or could not be. The past cannot change. Every event must have a cause. Only I can know what I'm feeling. He who sees must see something. In a 1982 talk called Wittgenstein's Two Cuts in the History of Philosophy, Anscombe considered why it was that professional philosophers had been so reluctant to engage with Wittgenstein's later philosophy. She said that other than the, quote, aficionados who simply want to imitate Wittgenstein, End quote. There are few philosophers who, quote, manifest in their way of going on that the problems have changed their aspects. She found herself puzzled by this, especially in light of so many philosophers 
enthusiastic response to the Tractatus early in the century. Here is her explanation, and this is the quote on the handout. Professional philosophy is to a great extent a huge factory for the manufacture of necessities. Only necessities give us mental peace. It is no wonder that Wittgenstein arouses a certain hatred amongst us. He is out to deprive us of our factory jobs. So a little later in that talk, Anscombe draws a distinction between, quote, a harmless and a delusive concept of necessity. Modal expressions like must, have to, impossible, can't, occur in the context of our ordinary thought and talk. They appear in particular where we find linguistic practices that explicitly involve rules, rights, and promises. You must drive on the left. Children are prohibited. You have to vacate the premises by the end of the month. In some areas of our linguistic practice, for example, some parts of mathematics, our modal expressions carry with them an idea of all unobserved and future possible cases already being determined. For example, when a mathematical formula fx maps to a unique number for every x, we say that the formula necessitates the answer. These kinds of cases are highly specialised and belong to features that are special to the practices in which they occur. We might harmlessly borrow from this concept of necessity when we say that a promise creates a necessary constraint or binds the promiser, whilst knowing that, in fact, though a promise limits my possibilities for acting well, it in no way determines what I can or will do. Philosophers, Anscombe says, are, however, inclined to borrow this notion whenever they're after the idea of determination, even when the background practice that gives this notion its application is not present. When they do so, she says, their use connects only to a, quote, delusive concept of necessity, and any determination is merely psychological. She gives us her example, the philosophical search for a criteria of personal identity. The metaphysician desires criteria that determine for any possible unobserved future case, an answer to the question, is A the same person as B? Anscombe thinks that such criteria are illusory. For any contender, animal identity, spatial temporal identity, psychological identity, it will always be possible that we might confront a case that we did not expect and which doesn't fit our criteria. The metaphysician's desire to block this possibility should not be indulged, since thinks Anscombe. It is the production of necessities in this sort of a way that she associates with professional philosophers' factory jobs and which she sees as Wittgenstein's and indeed Hume's target. So the contrast between a harmless and a delusive concept of necessity and the philosophical attraction that modal expressions have on our imagination are central themes in Wittgenstein's own philosophical writing. If one was feeling bold, one might say, Part of her brilliance as a philosopher lies in her knack for detecting and diagnosing cases in which the appearance of a delusive concept of necessity is getting in our way, in the way, sorry, of our forming a true conception of the subject matter with which we're concerned. The occurrence that will be most familiar to you is in her modern moral philosophy. There she contrasts two ways of thinking about the word ought 
as it appears in moral philosophy. On the one side, there is the delusive concept of necessity that is rightly attacked by Hume, the moral ought, and which appears in utterances of the moral philosopher when he insists that, quote, to harm the innocent is not just wrong, it is morally wrong, or you have a professional duty to deliver the lecture, but you have a moral duty to keep your promises, or you're obliged by etiquette to thank your host, but you are morally obliged to do what justice demands. This she describes, uh, she describes this must as a word of mere mesmeric force with a strong psychological effect, but which no longer signifies a real concept at all. On the other side is the harmless concept of necessity, the ordinary ought, which we ought to notice, she says, is such an extremely frequent term of human language that it's difficult to imagine getting on without it. Her thought there is that once the delusive must makes its appearance, we will stop uh, looking at the complex of practices and patterns that make up human life, human living, and that it is there in those practices that we will find a true conception of ethics. Once you start to look for it, you'll find her concern with the delusive concept of necessity throughout her writing. For example, in intention, where she considers the idea of a necessary connection between an intention and the action that realizes it. And in the way that that idea stops us from attending to the character of the concept of intention. Or in the first person, when she connect, examines the way in which the idea that I must be a referring expression, an idea that is connected with the felt need for a criteria of personal identity, stops us from really looking at how the word I is used. These are all illustrations of what Anskin means when she says that a manufactured necessity is an impediment to looking. So Wittgenstein's opposition to manufactured necessities, along with various negative remarks he makes about metaphysical uses of language, makes it seem almost a truism that Wittgenstein was opposed to metaphysics. In this paper, I want to make a case for rejecting that apparent truism. My thesis is that it is illuminating to characterize what Wittgenstein and Anston are doing in their philosophical writing as metaphysics without manufactured necessities. Anscombe says, quote, the things which Wittgenstein attacks, these are impediments to a true conception or to true conceptions. The fact that Wittgenstein and Anscombe convey their metaphysical insights using descriptive rather than modal language is, I will argue, not a mark of their hostility to metaphysics, but rather a reflection of the sort of true conception that metaphysical thinking can yield when it eschews the ersatz mental peace offered by a delusive manufactured necessity. A description of what we say and do, I want to argue, can have the status of a metaphysical truth, even if it is not a description which would be helpfully couched in modal terms. Wittgenstein says, quote, essence is expressed by grammar. We should, I want to claim, recognize in his work precisely the sort of insights about essence that it has traditionally been the metaphysician's business to uncover. So while I don't want to get too hung up on the label metaphysician, it's obviously open to us philosophers to define the word as we wish, 
And I wouldn't want to argue with somebody who wanted to stipulate a definition that would exclude Wittgenstein. I do believe that characterizing Wittgenstein as a metaphysician is productive along two dimensions. First, when Wittgenstein is pictured as a therapist concerned only with rules of grammar, practicing a form of therapy that results not in insight, but in silence, this makes it too easy to ignore him and too difficult to criticize him. Wittgenstein's later work, I believe, contains a sharper, more interesting critique of contemporary metaphysical practices than therapeutic or linguistic framings allow. As we begin to get clear about the form of that critique, what takes shape too is a new picture of what metaphysics as a human practice could, or more ambitiously should, be like. Second, understanding the particular sense in which Anscombe is a metaphysician allows us to place her in the context of a tradition of British metaphysics that emerged in the 1940s as an attempt to reverse the devastating impact on ethics of the new analytical philosophy. And I'll end this paper by saying a tiny bit about that tradition and how it relates to contemporary analytic metaphysics. Okay, so section one, the propositions of natural science. Anscombe draws attention to the delusive concept of necessity as part of a discussion of Wittgenstein's later thought but I have found that the best way to get at what metaphysics without manufactured necessities might be like is to trace what she says there back to her distinctive reading of the Tractatus. Like contemporary resolute readers of that book, Anscombe sees deep continuity in Wittgenstein's philosophical method, regularly returning to the Tractatus to illuminate aspects of the later work. Looking at the method as it practiced in the Tractatus rather than at the later work is helpful for at least two connected reasons. First, Anscombe sees the transition from the early to the later work as a progression from simplicity or simplification to complexity. Quote, the more Wittgenstein worked when he resumed philosophical investigation, the more he came to see it's not as simple as that. What becomes very complicated and thereby more realistic in the later work is there in a simplified form in the Tractatus where it's easier to see. Second, and for a reason that will become clearer later, Wittgenstein's growing interest in human practices involving rules, rights and promises may obscure the connection between grammar and essence in Wittgenstein's thought that I want to try and foreground. It would help us to see how Wittgenstein's reasons for categorizing metaphysical propositions as nonsense in the Tractatus holds a space for something that we might usefully call metaphysical truth by contrasting his reasons with those of the logical positivist. When Anscombe wrote her 1959 in Introduction to Wittgenstein's Tractatus, one of her main concerns was to distinguish Wittgenstein's attitude toward metaphysics from that of members of the Vienna Circle, popularized by A.J. Eyre in his 1936 Language, Truth and Logic. Eyre took himself to be, and was taken by many to be, restating Wittgenstein's own position in the Tractatus. In her book, Anscombe wanted to show that this was a false impression. 
The logical positivist reasons for calling sentences that purport to express necessary truths nonsense were not Wittgenstein's. So Wittgenstein says, and this is just Tractatus 6.53, the correct method in philosophy would really be the following, to say nothing except what can be said, i.e. the propositions of natural science, i.e. something that has nothing to do with philosophy, and then whenever someone else wanted to say something metaphysical, to demonstrate to him that he had failed to give meaning to his signs. This remark, Anscombe observed, observes, suggested to Eyre a, quote, quick and easy way of dealing with metaphysical propositions. It goes like this. Ask what sense observations would verify or falsify them. If none, they are senseless. This is precisely how we find Eyre arguing for the elimination of metaphysics. No statement which refer, this is a quote, sorry, no statement which refers to a reality transcending the limits of all possible sense experience can possibly have any literal significance, from which it must follow that the labours of those who have striven to describe such a reality have all been devoted to the production of nonsense. The only necessary truths, Eyre says, are analytic propositions which, quote, do not make any assertion about the empirical world, but, quote, simply record our determination to use words in a certain fashion. What makes this method quick and easy is that it allows the would-be metaphysical propositions to be rejected as a class rather than on an individual basis. If a metaphysical proposition is defined as a proposition that refers to a reality transcending the limits of all possible sense experience, and a proposition with sense is defined as a proposition that refers to a reality that can be sensibly observed, then it is an analytic truth that no metaphysical proposition has sense. So the quick and easy method does not require its proponent to apply the test to particular propositions. Propositions purporting to express non-analytic necessary truths are known in advance to be senseless. There's no claim of necessity. Observations can reveal how things are and have been, and can be used perhaps to make predictions about how things will be, but no amount of observation could reveal how things must be. As Eyre puts it, no matter how often an empirical proposition is verified in practice, there still remains the possibility that it will be confuted on some future occasion. You can't get a must from an is, we might say. On this picture, a putative claim about essence is either an empirical hypothesis open to falsification by future observation or a linguistic stipulation. One of the interpretive cornerstones of Anskin's book is that anyone who reads the Tractatus through the lens of empiricism has thereby missed the essential role that the picture theory of the proposition plays in Wittgenstein's attitude toward metaphysical propositions. It is that theory, she says, and not the sense verification theory that is operative in his remarks on metaphysical propositions and which led him to say that propositions purporting to express non-analytic necessary truths are nonsense. This is because the picture theory of the proposition commits Wittgenstein to the view that any proposition that is capable of being used to say something true 
must, by the same stroke, be capable of being used to say something false. So the picture theory. The picture theory, Anscombe says, emerges in the context of Wittgenstein's concern with negation. She brings out what's puzzling about negation by reflecting on the way it is defined in the logic books. This is a quote. Everyone is unwise is a negation of everyone is wise, but it is not what logicians call the negation of it. In logic books, when the sign for not is introduced, we are told that not P is the proposition which is true when P is false and false when P is true. Everyone is unwise is not certainly true. It's certainly not true if everyone is wise is false. Hence, it is not the negation of everyone is wise. What right, Anscombe asks, has anyone to give such a definition? The definition states that not P is the unique proposition that fulfills the condition of being true when P is false and false when P is true. But how does the logician know what justifies him in saying that there is one unique such proposition? How can he be sure that this holds regardless of the internal structure of P? That is, regardless of whether P is PA or ARB or for all X, WX or whatever. Such an assumption should strike us as epistemically extremely rash. Anscombe explains that Wittgenstein's concern is to secure the logician's right to this definition without giving, quote, an impression, as it were, of logical chemistry. That is, the explanation should not be one that conceives of truth and falsehood as, quote, two properties among other properties, which happen to attach uniquely to propositions and which can be tr transferred between them via logical operations in the way that atoms transfer their oppositional negative and positive charges. If we conceive truth and falsehood in that way, then it would, quote, look like a remarkable fact that anyone every one proposition possesses one of these properties. Using Wittgenstein's own example, quote, this would look no more a matter of course than the proposition all roses are either red or yellow would sound, even if it were true. As we all now know, thanks in a large part to Anscombe's influential book, the picture theory of the proposition is Wittgenstein's answer to this puzzle. The theory gives us a way of thinking about what a proposition is that makes clear, without the impression of logical chemistry, the grounds for the logic book's way of talking. Anscombe summarizes the theory as follows. A proposition, quote, in the positive sense says, this is how things are. And in the negative sense says, this is how things aren't. The this being the same in both cases. The way in which the saying this can be used to do these two things, to say P and not P, is clear where, the actual, where an actual picture is used in place of a sentence. And Anscombe provides uh, a picture to illustrate this, and it's the little picture of the uh, two men fighting that's on, on the handout, figure one. She says, if I have correlated the right-hand figure with man A and the left-hand figure with man B, then I can hold up the picture and say, this is how things are. Got a picture to hold up for you, sorry. 
I can also hold up the picture and say, this is how things are not. When we move from pictures as pictures to propositions as pictures, the same holds. So long as the parts of my proposition that are names are correlated with the objects of which I wish to speak, I can use the proposition A and B are fighting to say, this is how things are, or to say, this is how things are not. The picture theory shows or displays the grounds of our right to say, not P is the proposition that is true when P is false and false when P is true. To say that things are not as the picture shows, to say not P, quote, one must convey what situation one is saying does not exist. And this can only be done using a picture of that very situation, this. A picture of A and B not fighting wouldn't do it because this would have to be a picture of A and B doing some other thing. And just as everyone is unwise is not the negation of everyone is wise, so too a picture of A and B dancing is not the negation of a picture of A and B fighting. A, and, a picture of A and B walking has equal claim to be its negation, because if I hold up either picture and say, this is how things are, then I cannot, without contradicting myself, hold up a picture of A and B fighting and say, and this is also how things are. But if I want to say the negation of figure one, that is to show how things are not, my only option is to use figure one itself. So Eyre took it that when Wittgenstein spoke of the propositions of natural science in TLP 6.53, he meant just those propositions that can be verified by sense observation. But what emerges from Anscombe's reading is a view in which the limits of meaningful discourse are not epistemological but psycholo or psychological, but formal. As we might put it echoing Frege, Wittgenstein's is not a limit on thoughts, but a limit on thought. What leads Wittgenstein to characterize propositions with sense as propositions of natural science is not for Anscombe that they have empirical subject matter, but rather that they have the form to be used to answer the question P, question mark, where both P and not P are ways that things could be. They can be, quote, informatively said, as she glosses it, or elsewhere, they can be used to tell someone something. As Wittgenstein thought, it's not as simple as that, unfolds in his mature philosophy. His conception of thought also becomes more complex and more concrete, but it remains central to his philosophy that the philosopher's interest is in the form or grammar of human thought and not in episodes of thinking understood as merely an empirical or psychological phenomenon. Okay, part two, the status of metaphysical propositions. We can now consider the status of metaphysical propositions in the Tractatus. Wittgenstein says that the correct method in philosophy is, quote, to say nothing except what can be said, then whenever someone else wanted to say something metaphysical, to demonstrate to him that he has failed to give meaning to his science. 
what difference will it make to the way one characterizes what is wrong with metaphysical propositions that one adopts the picture theory of propositional sense rather than the verification theory? What difference would it make to how we understand the remarks about metaphysics in Wittgenstein's later work if we see them emerging through a process of desimplification out of Anscombe's tractatus rather than Ayres? In the remaining part of the talk, I want to sketch an answer to these questions and to show how the shift I've described brings in its wake the possibility of metaphysics without manufactured necessities. We've already seen that for air, metaphysical propositions can be categorized as nonsense as a class on a priori grounds using the quick and simple method. Anscombe says, in contrast, that when the picture theory rather than the verification theory is operative, the, quote, criticisms of the sentences as expressing no real thought could never be of any very simple general form. Each criticism would be ad hoc and fall within the subject matter with which the sentence professed to deal. Now, at first blush, I think this is a puzzling remark. Recall Anscombe's comment about figure one. She says, quote, if I have correlated the right-hand figure with man, a man A and the left-hand figure with a man B, then I can hold up the picture and say this is how things are. Combined with Wittgenstein's characterization of metaphysical propositions as those in which the speaker has, quote, failed to give meaning to his signs, this seems not to yield an ad hoc subject-specific criticism, but a single generic criticism. A sign in your proposition is masquerading as a name, but it has not been correlated with an object. Your proposition is, as it were, a picture on which one of the elements is not a simple proper. In this way of reading the message of the subject matter with which the proposition performs time, personal identity, subjectivity, causation, the will, sensation. Sorry, Rachel. Sorry to interrupt, but there's quite a lot of um, talking on your microphone, is it? Or, yeah. It might, yeah, it might have been that. Yeah, that's it. Sorry. Sorry. No okay. problem. But you might want to just go back a sentence or two. Okay. Um, okay, so we've... Mm, let me see. Uh, okay, so... So Anscombe says that, um, that the criticism of sentences as expressing no real thought can never be of a very general, simple, of a simple general form. Each criticism would have to be ad hoc and fall within the subject matter with which the sentence professed to deal. So at first blush, this is a puzzling remark. Recall Anscombe's remark about figure one. She says, if I have correlated the right-hand figure with a man A and the left-hand figure with a man B, then I can hold up the picture and say, this is how things are. Combined with Wittgenstein's characterization of metaphysical propositions as those in which the speaker has, quote, failed to give meaning to his signs, this seems not to yield a set of ad hoc subject-specific criticisms, but a single generic criticism. A sign in your proposition has, is masquerading as a name, but has not been correlated with an object. A would-be metaphysical proposition is, as it were, a picture in which one of the elements is merely a mark on the page and not a symbol proper. 
On this way of reading the method of the Tractatus, the subject matter with which the proposition purported to deal, time, personal identity, subjectivity, causation, the will, sensation, is of no relevance to the method. And no metaphysical insight into that subject matter could arise from the conversation within which the demonstration took place. The only possible insight would be the recognition on the part of the would-be metaphysician that his words have failed to express a thought. Anstim's rejection of this view is implicit in her claim that the criticism of metaphysical propositions must proceed by reference to their subject matter. If we can understand this rejection, we can see how it is that the methods for dealing with metaphysical propositions might themselves generate metaphysical truths. So in the philosophical investigations, Wittgenstein remarks, quote, it will often prove useful in philosophy to say to ourselves, naming something is like attaching a label to a thing. But he notes too that attaching a label to a thing is an act of naming only where there is an answer to the question, what kind of thing is A? If I attach a label inscribed Tove to an object on my desk saying this is Tove, for Tove to be a name, we will need to know whether a Tove is a utensil, a shape, a material, a numeral, a colour, and so on. Otherwise, the ceremony is an empty one. We give names, quote, to human beings, to shapes, to colours, to pains, to moods, to numbers. As Wittgenstein, as Anscombe herself would later put it, the use of a name to refer to an object is not conceptionless. The view that what goes wrong when someone tries to say something metaphysical is that they try to use as a picture something in which one of the elements is a mere mark on a page goes with the view that the names of the tractators are simple in the sense of making conceptionless reference to their objects. This view of simplicity would imply that the only way in which a name can fail to be correlated to an object is for it to be, as it were, a mere scribble. Anscombe relays a conversation she had with Wittgenstein, which led her away from this mistaken interpretation. There were, they were, she says, discussing Proclus's commentary on Plato's Parmenides. Anscombe told Wittgenstein that according to Proclus, quote, a name is a logical picture of its object. Wittgenstein replied, I have often had that thought. This, she said, changed her view of the Tractatus. Before then, she had assumed, quote, that the objects, the symbols spoken of in the Tractatus were uniform, characterless atoms, but that as such, and that as such, a name could not be a logical picture of its object. But after that conversation, she no longer thought this. Even the simple objects of the Tractatus, she came to realize, are, quote, diverse in logical form. She notes, for example, Wittgenstein's remark that, quote, space, time and colour are forms of objects. Though the process of desimplification led Wittgenstein to give up the idea of simple objects, Anscombe holds that the, the view of that names had logical forms did, quote, not simply die in his later work. And this we have just seen in the discussion of naming in philosophical investigations. Correlating a name to an object, A to John, B to the Battle of Embaba, C to London, involves introducing a symbol that has a particular logical form, 
a logical form that reflects the kind of thing that A, B and C are. A man, a battle, a place. Because of the logical form, because of the logical form of the name reflects the kind of object it names, the object will fix the possibilities for using that name in propositions with sense. Of this, Anscombe gives the following illustration. Were someone to say Mount Everest chased Napoleon out of Cairo, we would not be able to make sense of what he says if we hold on to the conventional meaning of Mount Everest as the name of a mountain. When Mount Everest is the name of a mountain, certain uses of it are excluded because of the kind of thing that a mountain is. Mountains, being inanimate, do not chase. This is what it means to say that the name has the logical form of the object with which it is correlated. If someone who said Mount Everest chased Napoleon out of Cairo insisted that by Mount Everest they meant to name a mountain, one would want to say things about mountains to put them back on track. A mountain is not the kind of thing that can chase. Or mountains belong to the non-sentient object in the world. Communication would very quickly break down unless he admitted a metaphorical, poetical, idiosyncratic use. The view that a name is a logical picture of its object gives shape to the task of the criticism of sentences expressing no real thought, where those sentences are employed by someone who wants to say something metaphysical. It explains why such a task must be ad hoc and respond to the subject matter at hand. The aim of such a criticism will not be to show that a sentence has as it were, a blank space in it, a gap where an object should have been. The aim is not simply to transform what is said into plain nonsense in diamond sense by pointing to a gap. Rather, the aim is to draw insight about the subject matter with which the sentence professes to deal out of the attempt to say something metaphysical. The form of the criticism will need to be sensitive to the character of whatever is doing duty as a name, to the conception that mediates the use of that name, and to the constraints on the name's combinatorial possibilities imposed by the nature of the kind of thing that it is a name for. Far from allowing us to use a quick and easy method, the task will now be that of coming to understand the nature of the specific failure where to do so would be to reveal something about the kind of thing that the would-be metaphysician is trying to talk about. So consider a proper example. Suppose I were to say, I am not RW, in the context of trying to say something metaphysical. Insofar as I'm trying to say something metaphysical, my intention in saying such a thing is not to answer an open question, P. R-U-R-W. I do not mean to say something, the negation of which is I am R-W. When I try to use I am not R-W to say something metaphysical, I do not mean to convey information in this sense, but say to give illumination about the nature of the self. I want to convey perhaps something that I might also express by saying non-informatively. The human being, RW, is not the subject of these experiences. To bring out my meaning, to see where my thought has failed, 
would require us to look at the ways in which I and RW and subject and experience function in propositions that are used to convey information. Propositions like, I am not RW, I am RW, I am having such and such experiences, where these are not attempts to say something metaphysical, but ordinary propositions that can be answers to the question P, question mark. This sort of looking is not a simple task, as we well know from Anscombe's paper, The First Person. Coming to see how it is that RW functions in propositions where it is correlated to an object, would be coming to see in the logical form of the name RW, the kind of object that RW names, and through that, the ways in which my metaphysical use of RW was precluded. This would be to come to see the kind of confusion that I was trying to deny when I said I was not, I am not RW. The propositions that would emerge in the context of such a conversation are not of the sort that convey information. And this is one way to understand Wittgenstein's insistence that they can only be shown and not said. Drawing on Wittgenstein's favorite, famous metaphor at the end of the Tractatus, Anscombe says, someone who has used them like stepped would be helped by them to see the world rightly. That is, he would see what is shown rather than being down in a bog, confusedly trying to propound and assert sometimes cases of what is shown and sometimes would be contradictions of these. Anscombe describes the Tractatus as, quote, a high point in the development of an historic line of thought that begins with the ancients. Quote, the idea that the proposition is an interweaving of simple names representing an interweaving of simple elements, she observes, is to be found in Plato's Theaetetus. But although the Tractatus represents the high point of development of that idea, the idea itself is too simple. Or as Wittgenstein himself would later say, it is a primitive idea of the way our language functions or equivalently of a language more primitive than ours. This simplicity, Anscombe says, is what prevents Wittgenstein in the Tractatus from using the notion of truth in connection with the kind of investigation I have described. That is, it prevents Wittgenstein from not acknowledging that close attention, e.g. to the subject matter of the metaphysical proposition, I am not RW, can help us to reach a true conception of the kind of object that RW names. Within the simplifying framework imposed by Wittgenstein in the Tractatus, any true proposition has as its pair a false proposition, which is its negation. Because the insights generated by the Tractatus's method are opposed not to falsehood, but only to a piece of confusion, Wittgenstein could say only that they showed, quote, what stared you in the face at any rate once you'd taken a good look, but could not be said. This, Anscombe says, gives a comical air to those parts in the Tractatus in which Wittgenstein says things and then says that they cannot be said. Okay, three, Anscombean and Wittgensteinian metaphysics. So metaphysics, as I said at the start of the paper, is in the business of saying how things must or could not be, or could, uh, must or could or could not be. 
Anscombe said that Wittgenstein rejected manufactured necessities, which he connects to a delusive concept, because they would stop us from engaging in the sort of looking that would yield a true conception. I have given us an example of that looking, Anscombe's investigation in the first person. In doing so, I've tried to illustrate, albeit briefly, how bringing words back from their metaphysical to their everyday use might be the first move in a philosophical method that could usefully be characterized as metaphysics. To bring words back is to resist the promise of insight that a manufactured necessity temporarily provides and to open up the possibility of a true conception that comes from seeing our words in use. The idea that in rejecting metaphysical propositions, Wittgenstein is rejecting everything we might call metaphysics, everything that is that falls under the description, discovering how things really are, discovering the nature of a reality that transcends us, is, I'm suggesting, a legacy of the bad way of thinking about the Tractatus's opposition to metaphysics, one that's influenced by the logical positivist's empiricist reading. This bad way is a result of wrongly linking the book's animosity towards metaphysical speech with the idea that there are only two kinds of meaningful utterances, those that can be verified on the basis of observation and those that state analytic truths and concern only our symbolism. Carried into the investigations, this becomes the thought that grammatical rules are linguistic conventions. It is the simplicity of the tractatus that helps us helps to show up the extent to which Wittgenstein's later characterization of these sorts of propositions as rules of grammar is different from the idea, which would be a descendant of Ayer's picture, that they are, quote, simply a record of our determination to use words in a certain fashion. In the introduction to her collected papers from Parmenides to Wittgenstein, Anscombe directs us to a great schism she sees between philosophy derived from the ancients and that which derives from the moderns. She writes that among the moderns, the trend has been, quote, to deduce what could be from what could hold of thought, as we see Hume to have done. But Wittgenstein, she says, had a better approach, one that he shared with Plato. Quote, a thought was impossible because the thing was impossible. An impossible thought is an impossible thought. This is one way of putting the contrast I've just made between Ayers Wittgenstein and Anscombe's. While for Ayers Wittgenstein, insights we might express in modal terms are really just about our language. For Anscombe's, they are really truly about the objects of our language. In his later work, Anscombe says, Wittgenstein did come to see that many concepts are of human invention. And this is the complication that I referred to earlier when I said that Wittgenstein's growing interest in human practices involving rules, rights, and promises, one dimension of his desimplification of the tractatus, can obscure the metaphysical character of his thinking. For these concepts, essence is not expressed by grammar, but genuinely created by it. And Wittgenstein's interest in these concepts, along with his focus on human practice, can leave a reader with the impression that when Wittgenstein talks of rules and grammar, 
He means things that are descendants of the rules of linguistic convention that we find in air. Metaphysical truths, facts about the nature of things, emerge from the method I have described, not as hypothetical theoretical postulates, but as true conceptions that are there to be seen when we do the work of looking at what we talk about in our language using life. These are things that, as Anskin puts it, stare you in the face at any rate once you've taken a good look. It will be tempting when we're in the possession of these insights to couch them in as necessity claims. The past cannot change. Every event must have a cause. Only I can know what I'm feeling. He who sees must see something. This temptation is one that Anskin following Wittgenstein warns us against. She, like him, couches her metaphysical insights as descriptions. One reason for this is that the method does not lead us to necessities of an absolutely a priori kind that once discovered can be placed in the archive for future reference. Another is that a true conception of a particular subject matter does not rule out the possibility that a case might come up that renders us speechless. The task of careful attention to the subject matter of would-be metaphysical propositions time, causation, subjectivity, is open-ended. If we stop looking and try to treat the formulations we come to in a way that would provide the sort of mental peace that a manufactured necessity might provide, the cannots and musts that will appear in our formulations will no longer be a misleading way of marking the fact that these truths, if they are truths, are opposed not to falsehood but to confusion. Rather, it will be the appearance of the delusive concept of necessity, similar to the moral must that does not connect with the human practice that would give it its logos. I cannot be RW, might, for example, be a harmless way of countering the sort of muddle that ensues if one is thinking of I and RW as co-referring terms. But the delusive concept enters if we try to treat it as the expression of a necessity of the sort that would help me to determine whether a particular object is me. Okay, so this brings me to the last bit of the paper and to a tradition in British metaphysics that is in danger of being lost. In his 1945 Aristotelian Society presidential address, the philosopher of perception H.H. H. Price considered a question raised by the then newish methods of analytic philosophy. Is clarity enough? As A.J. Eyre and his supporters returned to Oxford from their wartime hiatus, Price considered the present prospects of philosophy in this country. It is psychologically impossible, he told the society, quote, that we should begin where we left off six years ago. And even if we could, I do not think we should wish to, for it is felt by quite a number of people, rightly or wrongly, that during the 20 years between the two wars, philosophy has somehow taken the wrong turning. It is even said sometimes that the wrong turning which it took was one of the main causes of the disasters that have befallen civilization. 
So though Price was doubtful of philosophy's impact on world history and broadly supported the analyst's demand for clarity, he shared with a number of Anscombe's other Oxford tutors a feeling that something important, philosophically but also ethically and politically, had been lost when Eyre declared metaphysics extinct and the ambitions of analytical philosophy to understand language replaced speculative philosophy's ambition to understand transcendent reality. This was not a shallow critique of Eyre's emotivism, one that could be met well enough by the utilitarian prescriptivism of R.M. Hare, but a deep disquiet about what it meant and would mean to remove metaphysical thinking from philosophical practice. Price's address focused on the societal harm. One of the jobs of philosophy, he said, is to provide the public with worldviews that might help them to connect and comprehend a disorienting world. This, Price argued, is what philosophers, people are looking for when they come to philosophers seeking wisdom. And this is what metaphysics has traditionally delivered. But for some of Price's colleagues, it was not the demand for an orienting vision from bewildered, a bewildered public that was the central problem, but the way in which Eyre's vision severed the connection between human reason and a true conception of reality. It is in this tradition of humanistic metaphysics that Anscombe, along with her contemporaries, Philip of Foot, Iris Murdoch and Mary Midgley, belong. Dorothy Emmett published The Nature of Metaphysical Thinking During the War. That's another of their tutors. In it, she describes metaphysics as a process of articulating a vision of what the metaphysician judges to be especially significant or important. She connects the task of saying what matters with the task of saying what is real. The, quote, sheer sense of triviality is a paralyzing form of skepticism, hence it is often of unreality. If nothing matters, then, or at any rate, nothing is really real, she writes. And here I would note is a form of realism that is very much not empiricism. Donald McKinnon, who had been Anscombe's tutor for Plato, critiqued Eyre's vision on the ground that it reduced the task of philosophical understanding to that of analyzing the realm of conventionally constructed symbolism. The philosopher's question why, he noted, can on Eyre's vision only be asked in relation to arbitrary linguistic norms that float free of the reality they organize. McKinnon argued that the proper vehicle for metaphysical truth was not a theory, but a conversation and gave us an example of metaphysics in action, Wittgenstein's conversation with Schreffer. In that conversation, as with those I've described in this paper, an attempt is made to say something metaphysical, a proposition is a picture of reality. Straffer responds with a Neapolitan gesture, an ad hoc method responsive to the subject matter at hand. McKinnon writes, now I would wish to claim there is a sense or even there are senses in which one could claim that this conversation, this dialogue is itself a true proposition, though hardly in any ordinary sense, a picture of reality. A metaphysical dialogue, he writes, if true, is true if it enables one to draw nearer to what is the case. 
We know the story of metaphysics that takes us from Hume to logical positivism, to Quine's naturalism, to Lewis and to modern analytic metaphysics. In recognizing in Anscombe and in Wittgenstein a form of metaphysical thinking that involves looking at the world and finding their, quote, enormously interesting facts, facts that are not information but are about the essence of things, is to bring them into a rival metaphysical tradition. That tradition story begins, of course, with Plato and leads to Anscombe's Tractatus, to Emmett and McKinnon, and then on to the non-naturalist of metaphysics of, for example, Iris Murdoch. What runs through it is the view that the opposite of having the metaphysical facts in view is not having a mistaken theory about how things are or must be, but being confusedly down in the bog, as Anscombe puts it. And that's the end.